Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 389. Today is Sunday the 20th of September 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is a repeat offender. It's with Casper Craven, a sailor, entrepreneur, keynote speaker and author, including now of his second book, Be More Human, Rethinking the Rules of High-Performance Teamwork. In this conversation with Casper, you'll hear all about his extraordinary journey, his profound lessons learned, building strong relationships and teams, and how he's managed to bring success at work and at home. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Casper Craven. Wow. This is our third recording. Our very first one was done in 2012. I had to look it up. So eight years ago. And in the meantime, you've done a few things around the world in 80 days, perhaps, and, um, and written a couple of books, the least of which, last of which, is Be More Human, which I devoured over my holidays. Casper, in your own words, who are you? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> hey, Minter, it's great to be back. Um, and uh, I feel very honored uh, coming back for a third time. Um, it's interesting, by the way, you mentioned 2012. Yesterday, I had an email from um, a former client of mine, and they're clearing out their offices because they've decided after 30 years worth of offices, they don't need to have one anymore. And they had a newsletter, paper copy newsletter that I sent them in January 2012. And uh, they sent me the, uh, a photo, it was like a sort of a four page uh, thing. And uh, they sent me a picture of it um, uh, yesterday. And should we, it, call it, should we call it a veritable treasure trovus? Exactly. It was a little treasure trove of, treasure trove of memories which came back actually. And uh, the whole thing was about how do you take on and uh, set uh, big, bold goals and, uh, you know, tackle, tackle the impossible. So um, to your question, who am I? I think that I'm someone who likes to take on big, bold goals and tackle things that everyone else says are crazy because I don't know. I'm just wired that way. And I, kind of, I find it kind of fun. So. And may I say you walk the talk. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so your book. It's called Be More Human. And the content of the book, the fingerprint on the front, couldn't speak to me more. The subtitle is Rethinking the Rules of High-Performance Teamwork. First question I have for you, Casper, though, is when you are wanting to be more human, it sounds obvious. How can you tell somebody you're not human enough? Mm. Good question, isn't it? The, um, so look, wh where it, um, I guess, the, the philosophy comes from is how I was indoctrinated in, in the working world. It was all about numbers. Numbers first and people are the afterthought in terms of how do you, you know, make those numbers happen. So the question that um, you know, comes up for me about, you know, how do you tell someone to be more human? It's a question of well, what are you putting first? Is it the people around you who are actually going to make the things happen? Or are you driven by a digit on a screen or a piece of paper? 
And um, yeah, it's a powerful distinction for me. And actually, there's, there's another angle to that as well, that, you know, whether you're putting your ego first um, as well. And um, you know, to be more human for me means truly thinking about the other people around you and you know, building those teams with, with other um, people and helping them to release their talents. So that, that for me, I guess, is the answer. Yet, ego is immensely human. I mean, if we don't have an ego, who am I? Absolutely. It's, um, it's, so I think the, the point is not to say not to have an ego, it's to understand it. And ego and its counterpoint of, um, in my mind, of humility, it needs to be used in, in the appropriate measure. So, you know, I have a reasonable size ego. I like to go and take on big, bold goals. And that's great. And I can harness that power of that to give me the drive and energy. But then the humility part is knowing when to pause that and listen to the other people around me. So, you know, there's that uh, classic thing, which is there's no I in team, which I absolutely fundamentally dispute because every team starts with a deep understanding of I and, you know, who are you, what's driving you, and, um, yeah, understanding that balance of, of ego versus humility is, is fundamentally human. So, yeah, so we're both parts of it. So. We are, and it, it is balancing that because if we didn't have egos, we wouldn't have Shackletons. We wouldn't have people who have the courage to go out and do big, brave things. And so it's almost like you're vowed for failure at some level because you have to have a big ego in order to have the bravado, the courage to dump off the edge, to do things that no one's ever done before. Absolutely. And so that, I think, is the thing that gets you to, to leap off the edge, to set sail across the ocean. But you won't get the other side of the ocean if the ego runs the show the whole way um, because um, yet yeah, you need the, the team around you. And the, you know, the, the, the South African proverb, which uh, I often quote is, you know, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. And, you know, very much reminds me of the first time that I really learned this lesson it was when in um, 2000, 2001, I sailed around the world on um, what was called the BT Challenge, the world's toughest yacht race. And my skipper then, her, her philosophy very much matched the business philosophy of the day, which was, um, you know, um, a fast team is a happy team. If we get the numbers right, then everybody will be happy and we'll go even faster. And we won the leg going from Southampton to Boston. We were first in there. And it's like, you know, this strategy is really working. Then we sailed down the coast of South America. We were first round Cape Horn. And it's like, you know, more validation, this is working. By the time we get to New Zealand, we're not working that well as a team. We actually end up crashing our boats. And you realize that whole thing is just not sustainable. And so therefore, um, it's that balance with the, you know, embracing the team and having the humility to listen to everybody else around you uh, in order to make that winning team. So, um, yeah, it works for a short period, but not for a long period. One thing that struck me when you recount that story in the book, or at least surprised me, was that your skipper was a woman. Not that skippers couldn't be a woman, but it was that type of a skipper that was a woman. Yes. Because in balance, I would ascribe that mentality to be more masculine. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I have to say, I mean, she is, you know, probably the most talented sailor I have ever sailed with. I mean, she is just truly remarkable. But I think the, it's interesting, having um, spoken to my wife about this, about the types of role models that women are encouraged to, um, to take, or certainly have been historically. And I think there's the, the you know, the, my wife typifies it, you know, there's the type of woman who sort of, um, you know, has the balls and is like, has all the man characteristics, which I think typifies the type of skipper that I had, or there's the woman who's a doormat. And I see this sort of, you know, typifying with like the, the cartoons and the stories that my kids hear. I'm sorry. <laughs> So yeah, I think, there's, I think there's something just sort of, you know, very damaging about that. So I think this whole narrative that's coming through at the moment um, around, um, you know, equality is, is so, so important. And, you know, a father to two young daughters, I think they are you know, super, super keen to see that um, come through even more. So. Mm. Well, in, in your book, a lot of what you write about, Casper, suggests that you were fraught with weaknesses or at least errors. I would like to ask you, Casper, what the role of forgiveness plays in your narrative? Oh, that's a good question. Um, that's not something that I generally um, um, consider, which I guess is why you've, you've uh, sought that out. The, I don't really know how to answer that question. The, I mean, I think, you know, for me, it's, um, just a continuous learning journey. So I don't really know how forgiveness sits with that. Um, and I guess, you know, whether that's forgiveness of yourself or your forgiveness of others. If it's forgiveness of myself, I'm not sure I really feel the need to do that because every situation gives me something. It's another brick, it's another building block that I can move to move forward. So I'm not sure what there is to forgive within that. I think that, you know, you see, you'll see in the book, I talk about the concept of gifts, not arrows. And everything is a gift in some format. So, um, yeah, I'm not really sure where the philosophy of forgiveness fits into my world. It's not something that comes up is probably the short answer. <laughs> well, for sure. And funnily enough, in the word itself is the notion of giving. Yes. The gift. Yes. And, yeah. and it struck me that you were regularly harsh on yourself in the book for having thought you know performance and and my god i was an idiot and you know i was running this like that and i was going straight into wall and i just felt that there was somehow there's this undercurrent of of this work that you're cycling through to allow yourself to come out through the other side i personally am not someone who's good on forgiveness I have identified that as one of my weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And it just, it somehow feels a relevant counterbalance to accepting that you've screwed up. Yes, yes. Again, I don't really know how to um, think about that. I think that's something I'll take away and reflect upon, to be honest. Um, I think that, um, yeah, there's definitely a sort of a, a drive to, to learn and to, and to push through. And to uh, you know, find find the gift in that. And I haven't thought about the the implicit uh, connection of those those words. So I'm not sure. I'll reflect. There we go. Beautiful. <laughs> and and like so much of you, Casper, the ability to say I don't know is part of being real. Mm. There's nothing worse than the guy or the let's say the woman, the person 
who says, I know everything and I have an answer to everything. And, and what I enjoy particularly in a dialogue is the opportunity to go up to that wall, find it. Because otherwise it's all very comfortable, very practiced almost. And it's, it's for us to be able to discover where that wall is for each of us. The people listening to you, to me, frankly, to, to discover those walls. And that's where we find that there's something outside of that. One of the things you, you talk about is about having a single biggest weakness. Yes. And, and you ask Nicola to help you identify it. You can explain to us what is your biggest single weakness, surely. But the question I have underneath that, is it necessary for us to find the single biggest weakness? I feel like I have many, and, but I'm not sure I know to put a finger on the single biggest one. Sometimes mm. it feels like one day, this is my biggest weakness. Another day, it's that is my biggest weakness. You know, it might be the cookie in the, in the cookie jar, or it could be uh, one or other behavior that shows up. I don't know if they're all related. That may be where my psychologist needs to come in. Yeah, well, the, the first thing to say is you're not alone. I, I, I identify absolutely what you just said about, you know, it varies. So just backing up, so you asked a question about the concept of this. So for me, the, the concept is, you know, whatever it is you're trying to move towards, there will be recurring patterns that keep tripping you up. And um, the, the, so the language that I use around that is the, the single biggest weakness. And of course, you know, there are consistently a number of things that, that trip us up and uh, stop us moving forward to where we want to go. We keep going around these patterns time and time again. So one of the ones I talk about in the book is the one of blame, and it's always someone else's fault. And I suspect a lot of people, some other people, may be able to identify with that. So the 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 concept then of how do you deal with that is to pull that out. And I describe the, the concept of soaking in the pain of it. Normally, we're conditioned to run away from the pain of things, but usually that's trying to tell us something. So I like the concept of lifting it up on my hand in front of me and turning it around and looking at it from all the different angles and saying, what's the thing that you're trying to tell me here? What's the message that I'm not hearing? And so it's that um, process of introspection to get inside that thing because uh, what I've found is invariably that is the thing that stops you moving to where you want to go. As to what's the single biggest one, um, the I think we can only tackle one big thing at a time so therefore it's a question of saying what's the one that's really holding me up and um, that may change from day to day but um, as, a, as a practical process, then I'll say, okay, I'm just going to fixate on one of those things. And, you know, you'll, again, you'll see in the book that um, for me, that, that, that first one I focused on was the word blame. And so I wrote it up on a piece of paper and stuck it on my bathroom mirror. So when I went in there, it was staring me in the face and I was like, ah, I'm going to get irritated by this because that's the thing that keeps um, recurring. So um, yeah, pick one, anyone, and um, yeah, focus on that until that starts to uh, work its way through. It sort of becomes much more prevalent in your conscious mind that you're doing 
doing that so that you become aware when that thing arises. Um, and then once you've spent a good amount of time and how do you define that? Well, it means that that thing is much less you know, occurring than it, than, than it was before. Then maybe move on to another one um, when, it, when it no longer keeps tripping you up. But uh, yeah, one at a time. Like that. So it really is about making a concrete example that you're going to go after. Because if I say I have hundreds of weaknesses, you're never going to go anywhere. No, no, exactly. And, you know, it's, I, 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 I couch it in terms of it's, it's an emotional pattern. Uh, rather, you know, I'm not very good at doing detail or I don't like doing contracts. It's more of a terms, it's, it's an emotional, it's a, it's a behavioral trait. That, uh, that we exhibit. So, you know, my, my wife for a long time has been, you know, everything has to be perfect before I can move forward, which leads to procrastination because nothing is ever good enough and everything gets put off. And, you know, she's more than aware of that. And um, so that that's so on. So but we, we all have our own unique flavors of them. So mm, That's right. And that's your reading into it and then how you sort of undo it those steps towards and then along the way presumably you might even fix others because inevitably it's more complex as you go forward one of the sorry one of the um other big topics that was really relevant to me casper was this notion of family first and and so you you discover you 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 let's say you more have an awakening to uh-oh my family life is not where it needs to be. I've been focusing on the work life. And you, you make this decision to, to, to sail around the world for a couple of years with your family. And, and you make that a priority. And it comes back. There are two things that struck me. The first is that while I 100% agree with you on the notion of family first as a, a construct for business in other words good at home good at work mm -hmm. the contract is so different ultimately work as you define it is about relationships such mm -hmm. as a family a little bit more amorous filial daughters mm -hmm. yet there's a sort of a long-termness to family relationships let's call it for life Yes. The, yes. the contract at work is not at all that. And so I was wondering if you could talk us through the, the relationship between those contracts, if you will. Naturally, there is a contract when we get married, but mm -hmm. it's really not at all the same. And so tell me how it works in those different contracts. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So what's the best way to approach that? The, I think the... Um, difference between the contracts. So, you know, my, my starting point comes that the, you know, in, in the long run, what we end up finding is most important to us um, is family. And, you know, listen to people on their deathbeds and all that sort of stuff. And it's always family stuff that, that comes up, which is what drives the, the family first concept. So if you start at the end point and work backwards from that. So I think how the um, the contracts, if you like, get reconciled, it comes out through the open conversation. And all any of this really does, it's trying to encourage and facilitate a, a dialogue between um, within your home team and within your work team. So what do I mean by that? 
So when uh, Nicola, my wife and I, came up with our plan to go off and do our sailing, for the five years that we were then preparing for that, I was working harder than I ever worked before and probably working longer hours. But we both knew that that's what I was doing because I had to do that in order to make um, our, um, our goals happen. And by the same um, thing, in my business, my business partner, Ed, I'd said, look, this is what I want to work towards in five years' time. I want to go off and do these things with my family team. So for me, it's the whole thing about the openness of having those conversations and setting those priorities, what's important to me at work, what's important to me at home. And you know, one of the things that I always encourage um, leaders and their teams to do is to ask each of your team members, it's like, why are you here? What's really driving you? What's important to you? Because it's just having that, um, that understanding and people's priorities are whatever they are. And I think it's just having uh, yeah, more um, authenticity, more transparency around that. And, you know, this whole thing about, you know, we have a work life and a home life. No, you've just got one life. And it's just a question of just trying to equate those, those conversations and you'd be much more open about that. So I think that's probably how I'd reconcile the, the contracts between the two different things. It's, it's use it to have a conversation about how do you balance those priorities up. Love it, Casper. One of the reasons I left L'Oreal was that I didn't respect the CEO who's still there for his mismanagement of his personal life. Mm. One, as a shareholder, you would typically say, well, that has nothing to do with it. Look at the share price performance, look at his uh, ability to attract talent. And, and yet I felt that I couldn't respect him for mm. his style of living a personal life with mistresses, with all sorts of mm. what I would call non-ethical behavior. Yes, yes. <clears throat> How do you reconcile that thought with what is typically a shareholder, much mm. more pragmatic approach? So, you know, I have this fundamental belief, how you do anything is how you do everything, right? The way that, uh, that you show up is, uh, is quite a good um, in indicator of, of one's character and what one is like. And um, that would probably set alarm, well, it would set alarm bells running, running for me as well, to be honest. Um, and, you know, the, as I sort of, you know, start building my, my, next, um, my, business, my next business, you know, the values that sit true for me, are this radical truth, radical authenticity, radical transparency, and just having those straightforward conversations. And you know, if someone's having affairs and all those sorts of things, well, that doesn't sit very comfortably with that because that's a world of, uh, of secrecy and deceit and so on. So um, you know, fun fundamentally uh, very, very different things. So it's interesting actually, just whilst um, as the, uh, just my mind was still running on the previous question as well. The, I, I do think that this uh, whole thing between um, um, work life and home life is such an important um, thing to be connected. And one of the things that I, I love doing is taking concepts from one place and applying it to another place. 
And so, you know, one of the things is you take the idea of a vision or a story of what the future looks like in a set of values from work and you apply that at home. And to which point most people usually say, but that's terrible getting your kids to sign up to values and mission statement. And my answer to that is, you know, once you take that corporate stuff and you run it through the filter of the real world and your family, your partner, your kids who are the filter on the real world. And if you take home a whole bunch of corporate BS, they'll tell you very quickly and very easily what's wrong with it. And then once you start to normalize that language and what's actually happening, and it gives, oh, so that's what that really means. Then you can take that learning and approach back into the workplace as well. So it's just trying to make more real conversations about you know, what's actually going on, why are we here, what are we doing together, you know, what's our purpose. And I think so much of that gets lost in that language. So it's uh, just normalizing it, I think. Yeah, and, and to your point, being normal, being more human in your language, and, and probably not u- using acronyms so mm. frequently and, and just be more understandable, relate into emotions. If, you're, if your child is being emotional, that's normal. If uh, an employee is being emotional, don't call it petulance. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, <laughs> and you have that good dose of understanding, right? Why are they doing that? What's going on? What, what's, 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 what's really happening? And you know, things, things are seldom as they seem on the surface, right? So. so I have a couple of last areas I wanted to dig into. One is decision-making. Mm-hmm. As a captain of a boat, sir, <laughs> you, you have the last word. When the first mate is my wife, <laughs> it, it could be complicated. At some level, someone has the, the buck stops somewhere and maybe not everyone agrees. Talk me through moving away from consensus agreeing while being human. Mm. So the, the, the watchword for me that comes up is, is humility. And my, my take on this is that if you're in a team with people and the team of people of which the leader is just another member of the team, that everyone genuinely feels listened to, understood, heard, seen, then when the leader makes a final decision, because someone has to, right? Someone has to say, okay, this is what we're going to go and do. But if everyone feels that they've had a part in doing that, then I think that definitely um, facilitates that. And you know the um, and you'll come across the story in the book with uh, my wife and I and we had our different uh, roles on the boat. So I was yes. the captain and she was the first mate, and there was also the husband and wife relationship. And you know there was conf- there was the potential for confusion there because we had the dual roles running. And yeah, there was that instance in the middle of the storm and I spoke directly and sharply to her. Can you do this, please? And it's like, don't speak to me like that. And it's like, no, it's not a husband wife conversation. It's it's in this um, context here. And so I guess, um, yeah, it's uh, it's just having the open conversation and, you know, everything we did on the boat, every sailing, and I learned this on the racing yacht, every sailing maneuver you do, you sit down and you say, okay, what went well? What can we do better? And it's just that continual uh, learning environment and uh, not assuming you have all the answers. And um, so I think, you know, the situation with Nicola, when she spoke to me in the middle of the storm, it was a wake up call for me in terms of how do I speak to her? How do I have more humility in the language? 
and but without losing the directness because sometimes you do need things to happen and for her just understanding well okay there's times and situations when that doesn't doesn't apply so um and i think you know in sort of in the workplace I think the um, you know, if people in teams feel that they are their views are being listened, respected, heard, then my, my sense is they're okay when someone makes that decision, even if they don't agree with it, if if they've been heard. So, so I, I love that answer. You you talk at some point about how you experienced somehow the same journey, whether it was the Trovus situation, let's say. I would call it meltdown. You could choose another word. The journey, the boat journey and the crisis that happened midway. And then the coronavirus mm. experience that we've had. Crises abound. It strikes me that it's the work off the ball, to use the uh, football terminology or a rugger terminology, that you make the ability to handle the crisis. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, the... Um... You know, the, say, the, the word that gets bandied around a lot at the moment is, is resilience, right? How do you respond when things go wrong? And look, the, 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 the real answer, it's built, resilience is built in the foundations of the team. And, you know, is there that trust within that team? Have you got clarity on where you're going together? Uh, you know, how well do we work together? And if you've got that strong foundation, then, you know, the world can chuck whatever at you and you're going to figure out the answer to what that is. The other answer to that is, well, how can you suddenly turn on resilience in the moment? And that's purely about managing and understanding your emotional journey, your emotional reactions. Um, so, you know, when something bad happens, so when we had a you know, power failure in the middle of the ocean when COVID hit and our emotions spike and they go off the charts, my experience is that we rarely make good decisions when we're in that heightened state of emotion. So it's, uh, it's letting that, um, you know, the emotional part of our brain, the back 70% of our brain, let that do its thing. And then you can engage the, the, the front 30% of our brain to make better cognitive decisions. You use the people around you to challenge those decisions. Um, so that's kind of the in the moment thing. But the, the much deeper answer, of course, yeah, it's, it's building those really solid um, team foundations. So, um, yeah, that's, um, I guess, the, the two different ways we can think about responding to, to what we've got right now. And, you know, there's no better time to really, you know, focus on building those team foundations right now. Start building the trust. What's the story? Where are we going? How do we, you know, make sure everybody's okay at work and at home? How do we um, develop our values, have good conversations about those? So, uh, you know, now is always a good time to start doing more of those things. Mm. Last question for you, Casper. So I wrote a book on empathy mm -hmm. and it has come across my desktop, a few messages. Well, Minter, that wasn't very empathic of you. For writing a book about being more human, how often do you feel like you have to live up to that? Is it something that's more natural? Do you feel you get called out on that with, you know, Nicola occasionally saying, well, Casper, or where, uh, talk us through your relationship with this paradigm that you set up. 
Yeah, no, I definitely sort of uh, made a rod for my back there, haven't I? So it's, uh, um, I think uh, Nicola has used that against me several times. It's like, you know, so if you're not living your thing, I can't remember specifically what it was. My mind seems to have filtered, conveniently filtered that out now. Um, but I think the, I mean, you know, my natural approach is, you know, to, 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 to your, your word of empathy, it's, it's the same sort of thing. It's, well, it's exactly the same thing, isn't it? It's, it's having that, that empathy. So, um, um, I think you know, the. I don't profess to have all the answers, and I think if anyone, you know, if I did say that, then no, no one would rightly believe me. I think you know the formula I mentioned here. We're all, we're all a work in progress. So being more human, I think, is accepting that. So if someone comes up with a good challenge and says well, that part's not human, I look at it and say, okay, well let's, let's look at it. And they may be right, they may not be right. Who knows? So it's, <laughs> we'll look at it. But um, yeah, we'll see like so often it's how you react to it that actually counts yes yes no absolutely it's um yeah and if, if one if one feels the ego raging and saying no you're wrong you're wrong then it's like oh hang on a second <laughs> maybe i need to re remind myself look at my thumb and remind myself that i'm human like everyone else absolutely with blood all over uh casper <laughs> how can someone get in touch with you get your book uh, and and uh, what sort of clients are you looking for so um, thank thank you, Minter. The um, so look, the yeah, the book and all the other bits and pieces are available on my website, uh, caspercraven.com. Sort of clients. So I'm on the cusp of launching a new business. Um, the business name is uh, Big Bold Goals. Um, so basically, it's how it's it's uh, it's an immersion teamwork development program um, targeted at large corporates and uh, fast growth um, companies um, who've got leaders. Who want to go after big bold goals that uh, most other people would be terrified of and um, you know it's, it's packaging these 20 principles into ways that can help people go and achieve those so if anyone's interested in that I'd love to talk to them so thank you for the question. Casper thank you for coming on the show always a pleasure to follow you and read your stories the candor with which you recount them the storytelling is marvelous the lessons seem to be endless so thanks again Casper. Minter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. is a real
Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, 
how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.